This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will with a grade 7 in tuba. And I'm Leah, once voted Best Actress of the Year by a panel of my peers. Hello, we are back. It is good to be back. We have been away for a little while. Everything should be working now and sound less on the fire. And then there was a whole Christmas thing. You know how these things spiral out of hand. But we are here. The science is ready and raring to go. Except we're not really talking about science. Well, we're not talking just about science. This episode, we are looking at science and art together, the intermingling of the disciplines. We're talking about mostly science that's about art. People have done science about people doing art. Somewhere out there, I'm sure people are doing art about people doing science. Doesn't work quite so well as a podcast medium, though, so we'll have to talk about those some other time. First things first, as a tubist, this press release from October 2017 really spoke to me when it says in the headline, I don't take my tuba to work at Microsoft. I'd be amazed if anyone did take a tuba to work at Microsoft. It's not a very portable thing. Yasuza phones, on the other hand, designed for marching with. So, like, maybe there's some wiggle room there. But this paper from Lahai University is all about the untapped creativity in the workforce and how to maybe make the most of that. I'm genuinely not certain you've pronounced the name of the university right. Lehigh? Yeah, I think that's how I've heard it pronounced before. But it's somewhere in America, and they call Arkansas, Arkansas, so who knows? I would like to say, I'm sure there are people who take their musical instruments to their office jobs. They are probably musical instruments that are better at, like, just a general sort of background melody situation, rather than something designed to be a bass line. I know, there are some instruments where you see someone come into work with an acoustic guitar, you think, oh god, it's going to be an entire lunch break of Anyway, Here's Wonderwall, just on and on and on. Someone with a violin, you got to really hope they're going to do something amazing with that, because anything less than quite good violin is pretty bad violin, and I say that as someone who's pretty bad at the violin. And it got up to grade two. Was that even worth? I mean, I did multiple years learning the recorder and never did any grading at all. So, maybe stop flashing your musician privilege around, thanks. I'm sorry that my UCAS points only worked up until I was 18. I still want to wring some more worth out of them. (laughs) I do work with someone who plays the bagpipes, but he hasn't brought them to work yet. Yet. (laughs) I warned him about the bagpipe lump. (laughs) That is an episode one callback. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're off to a flying start. It's extremely memorable, though, isn't it? memorable stuff, as is, apparently, a lot of the work happening at Lehigh, Lehigh, however the pronunciation is meant to be for that. Someone let us know, we genuinely, genuinely don't know. not in our vocab. But their work, which was published in American Behavioral Scientist at the time, shows that the majority of arts alumni, over 90% in fact, now work in non-arts-related jobs, or at some point in their lives work in non-arts-related jobs, And how do you bring that creativity into the workplace, keep that creativity and those skills alive in you? This is something that the researchers involved described as the concept of a creative identity. How do people who think of themselves as creative, trained to be creative, or do or do not view that creativity as a portable skill in various occupational contexts? Are you still an artist if you have a desk job? 
Are you still a musician if you are making ends meet? Whatever it is that you need to do is getting done. I feel like this is relevant to discussions about the way that, for example, maths and science education are always seen as having transferable skills, whereas people don't necessarily think the same way about arts education. You'll they'll be like, well, what's the use of being able to analyse something to do with a painting? blah blah But the research skills, the skills of contextualising and just open-mindedness and creative thinking definitely always come in handy. From a musical perspective, a lot of music is a teamwork, with sometimes dozens up to a hundred other people trying to get the same piece of music to sound good to maybe even thousands of people listening to it. And that's as a soft skill, that's a pretty useful one to lean on, or the ability to look at the series of holes that we call a saxophone and go, I know what to do with that. That's some very technical knowledge. It is something that is in fact quoted by one of the respondents in this survey where they're looking at balancing creativity and work life. An individual explains that, I use the technical skills on my instrument as a tool and backdrop for most of the creative work I do, with or without the instrument. Another one describing his arts training as relevant in working with others and needing to consider people skills like in the band. Not relevant because I don't take my Jeeva to work at Microsoft. Another quote from further down, which does give me a little bit of pause now I think about it though, that the communication skills and creative thinking I learned at art school really help with lawyering. I'm sure there's a better word for lawyering than lawyering. Only more specific ones? Practicing the law? I mean, it really depends in what way they are a lawyer. There are lots of flavours of lawyer. True. One of the respondents, just down the page from that first quote about lawyering, draws a very distinct line between arts is creative, law is thinking. Because apparently creativity isn't a thought process. That's up to them. But in the overall analysis, researchers attached to this paper, wherever it is that they are from, find that about 60% of graduate alumni say they are somewhat or very satisfied with the opportunity to be creative in their work. And seeing as my job is now kind of full-time audio production, it's touching on skills that I did kind of foster from playing in bands and recording crummy punk songs in our parents' lounge. So, an informal training, but my background is now directly influencing my work. So I guess I'm in that 60%. And if we want a more direct way of how your musical background influences your day-to-day life, we can point to how upset you get when people can't clap in time at concerts. It's they're so bad at it. <laughs> I know, like, Doppler effect and time and stuff, but, but lots also- of people... Also, very bad at timing. Lots of people just don't have rhythm. Mm. Moving on to our next story, here's a puzzler for you guys at home. Which do you think is more dangerous to your personal health? Professionally punching people and getting punched at by people, or musical theatre? The answer may shock you. Turns out both, let's call them disciplines for the sake of argument, involve quite a lot of head injuries that aren't necessarily treated as seriously as they should be. Because, you know, people get bonked on the head and you just go, eh, get back to it. Is it really that trained on what to look for as a concussion? Because I've done first aid and I don't remember it coming up. I only know because of that one time I did get concussed and my mum thought I was being dramatic. But I'd had another bang on the head earlier in the day that I hadn't mentioned. And then I started throwing up. Hmm. Well... Sports and traumatic brain injury do have 
a proven link. I think there was an entire Will Smith film about it. In football, in American football, in mixed martial arts, the risk and rate of head injury remain unknown, according to St. Michael's Hospital. Ohio University, though, have done the numbers when it comes to concussion-related symptoms in the performing arts, and 67% of theatre workers surveyed had experienced head impacts. Almost 40% had more than five. This is among many reasons you should make sure everyone has got some, like, first aid and health and safety training, because, I mean, I don't know how many of you listeners have been backstage in theatres, but there is an awful lot of stuff that could drop on your head. Lights, scenery, other performers. I was thinking immediately of people who have been thrown into the air and then come back down on you. If you've got to take any kind of a fall as part of a performance, if... Someone has left the drama studio floor a little bit damp because they were getting sweaty. Lots of noggin bonkin opportunities. So many. Or as Fior Tat, a sophomore student at Ohio, relates with a bit more experience from having actually done it and not described head injury as bonking one's noggin as I just have, she is not surprised by the study's result and said she once slipped and fell, hitting her head and felt really off. She had had light sensitivity and noise and took some time to rest since it was the end of the semester, not much work to do, even though she was eventually diagnosed with concussion, Tat admits that had her injury occurred during a show, she would have kept working. There is a feeling that if you say you can't do the work, someone else will just get to do the work. There are some parallels in the MMA head injury study where basically we don't have the numbers because what constitutes a serious head injury isn't defined and... The numbers don't necessarily exist to make comparisons to other sports and activities. With the performing arts one, again, this is something where the numbers aren't well understood and it is probably being underreported in, you know, official statistics. You're not going to find lots of people talking about it in the accident book. Even in the training book, out of something like 250 pages, head protection received all of two-thirds of a page, according to this press release in front of us. And you can definitely tell that people are going into an MMA fight without head protection and then get immediately punched in the head. I feel like it's not going to be long until the numbers do start coming in for that. Yeah, I would expect, much like boxers and American football players, there will be an increasing number of retired sports people with obvious symptoms of brain injury. Hmm. But preventing head injury... We can move on to preventing burnout, which is kind of a mental health concern. It does tie in, I'm sure there's a segue here, with work from Tulane University looking at using arts and humanities in medical school to, well, help people just be better people. And specifically be better doctors, which is nice. We always want doctors to be better. Mm. And in the words of senior author Mark Kahn, the Peterman Prosser Professor and Senior Associate Dean in the Tulane University of the School of Medicine, the humanities have often been pushed to the side in medical school curricula, but our data suggests that exposure to the arts are linked to important personal qualities for future physicians. This is the first study to show this correlation. They conducted an online survey, measured exposure to the arts, personal qualities that could be considered positive and useful for a practicing doctor, and negative qualities associated with well-being with a sample of medical students. Now, I'd say 739 is a relatively small sample, 
I'd say for a single institute study, that's fairly comprehensive. And if there are any questions, then I would encourage this to be repeated and rolled out across a couple of other places for observational studies and confirmation, because if it does end up making doctors more resilient to burnout and being able to function better as empathetic, humane people, then let's give that as much chance to work as we can. Yeah, because the correlation that these surveys revealed was that medical students who had more exposure to the arts scored higher in openness, visual-spatial skills, empathy, and scored lower on qualities associated with burnout. They don't mention controlling for, you know, whether the sort of people who are better at those desired qualities are just more likely to seek out and engage with arts. They've not necessarily shown a causal relationship. That would be something I'd be interested in investigating. You know, it, those whose people skills are better are more likely to do something creative. Or is it coincidence that the sets of qualities and exposure to arts, there is a, like there is a different factor that links them? Because having interacted with lots of people who are very artsy and very academic, and some who are both very artsy and very academic, it is possible that this isn't necessarily a causal relationship. Well, coming back to the first paper we had about opportunities to use your creative skills and soft skills, transferable skills from a background in the arts at work, some musicians have to remember lots and lots of things. Doctors have to remember more, more serious stuff for sure, and mastery of any kind is going to inform the learning skills and practice skills as well for taking up any other discipline. Mm -hmm. That said, if a doctor did come to my bedside table and he was, I don't know, singing songs from Sweeney Todd, I would still have pause. Yeah, that would definitely be inappropriate. I've told you about the anaesthetist from when I had my wisdom teeth removed, right? Yeah, yeah. The Jolly Roger tattoo. Yeah. Last thing I remember was that upside-down skull looking at me. I'm just going to send you to sleep now. The exact opposite feeling is covered in our next press release from the University of the Arts Helsinki. Art creates hope. A press release covering the release of their new educational text on critical articulations of hope from the margins of arts education. This is edited by Eva Antila and Anina Swominen and covers how art might be a response to many problems that the human race is currently struggling with. They list them in the introduction to the book. Natural disasters, political crises, prolonged violent conflict, global corporate greed, continuing disrespect for foundational human rights, environmental and economic impoverishment, and increase in hostile attitudes. That's really detailed what I fear and have anxiety about on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's an extremely stressful time to be a person operating as part of society. Like, I've had a general problem with the world for a while now, and they've articulated each of these very, very clearly. There's a wonderful quote from Eva Antilla, a couple of paragraphs below this introductory list of the problems which they think art can help relieve. Art can have a crucial role in saving the world. There's a lot of potential there that has not yet been utilised, according to Eva Antilla, who has the fantastic title of Professor of Dance Pedagogy at the University of Arts Helsinki. That's the sort of job that when you are talking to someone new at a party, and they go, what do you do? And you say, I'm professor of dance pedagogy at the University of Helsinki. And they're like, oh. Professor, interesting, of dance. Wow. 
dance pedagogy. Okay, there's like, it's like a parfait. There's layers to this. <laughs> and yes, Shrek references in the year of our Lord 2020 will still have exactly as much relevance as they did the first time around. Honestly, people take the piss out of Shrek, but that first movie was... The first two, actually, were really, really good. And the soundtracks. Banging, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, Saving the World with Art, which I suppose we could draw more Shrek links to, but we'll leave that alone for now. Antilla does specifically use climate change as an example, suggesting we might raise the next generation to be creators and reformers rather than simply consumers, which, yeah... Yeah. Some of you might have watched a year or so ago now a program that the BBC ran called the Victorian House of Arts and Crafts, where they got a bunch of artisans and craftspeople together to live the arts and crafts movement lifestyle for a month or so. And that's the mood, basically. That's that's what William Morris and all his colleagues in the arts and crafts movement were going for, is people who make rather than people who consume. I can see that we're on the right kind of trajectory, that following the mid-thousands financial crash in which everyone was broke, to now the increased public discourse and engagement with social political topics, we are in the woke phase, and then we move into bespoke. Ah, I see. We're really memeing hard, which is, <laughs> um, if anyone is listening to this who's like under the age of 25, this is probably painful to listen to. Oh god, the transformation into my father begins. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether any of Generation Z listen to our podcast. If you do, give us a wave, young people. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Where's my scientifically engaged teens at? <laughs> Lots of them are in their 20s now. They're like, they're like aging into proper adulthood, which is wild. No, I've only just finished being in my 20s. That's not right. <laughs> We're veering into a different topic of causes for my anxiety, but I will follow this up, the conversation that we're having about the art to save the world thing. When you were talking about the financial crisis, I was going to point out about how um, in Greece, after the economy like completely imploded and money became essentially meaningless and having a job became essentially meaningless, a vast number of people gave up their day jobs and became like yoga teachers and potters and weavers and stuff because if uh, everything is based off basically a barter system you can kind of make value out of anything you're doing and it's unfortunate that it took basically the total collapse of the economy to do it i'm hoping the rest of the world won't have to get to that point there were a good two or three seconds there when i thought i don't remember that bit of the musical i know it's first thing on sunday morning but get a grip <laughs> Shant. <laughs> anyway, you might think this whole saving the world with arts thing does sound a bit lefty, liberal, metropolitan elite. A little bit hippy-dippy and woo-woo. To quote it directly from the press release, the book presents perspectives on arts education from marginalised contexts and communities around the world. The inspiration for the book came when editors noticed that a large portion of literature on arts education is in some way linked to the Anglo-American academic context. That the contributions are a collection of educators, researchers, and artists who have devoted their research and practice to exploring how to utilize arts education to work towards justice, equity, sustainability, and hope when communities or groups are faced with the most challenging or arduous situations. I'm pretty keen to read this, to be honest. It sounds like there's going to be some really good stuff in it. And as somebody who frequently experiences deep and affecting art feels, 
I'm into it. I'm very into it. So that's Critical Articulations of Hope from the Margins of Arts Education from the University of Arts Helsinki. This press release from November 2018. You should be able to find it in local libraries or through whatever online access portal you use. And while we're on the subject of using art to improve the world, how about music lessons? Which, according to this press release from Frontiers in Neuroscience, music lessons improve children's cognitive skills and academic performance. And this is something that I have had hands-on experience with. I was in music lessons up until I was about 16 on a couple of different instruments, and I've been playing in bands for all of that time as well, so there was informal music education as well. And as we were talking about earlier, you got not just a length of time, a depth of learning. And there was very much the expectation that if you were playing an instrument in the county music service that I was a part of, you were probably some kind of a nerd. Which is true. Mm-hmm. Although, admittedly, you big brass boys were less nerdy than, say, the first violin. A different kind of nerd. Bear in mind that the biggest brassest boy that I sat next to, the first tuba for a long time, a guy called James, did have Lord of the Rings tattoos. Okay, but... He was very hype when Return of the King came out. <laughs> he was able to be nerdy about other things, whereas the first violin probably only has space in their life to be nerdy about violin, because... That's a competitive... That's why I dropped violin. Whereas YouTubists had the <laughs> scope to be nerdy about other things because there were fewer of you to compete. I feel like we're establishing some kind of ecosystem here. You know that's how that is. You've spent enough time on the humour section of Classical FM to know that's <laughs> how that is. I haven't, it's a riot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my personal experience of this is backed up by this research, published in Frontiers of Neuroscience, from the VU University of Amsterdam, with corresponding authors being Dr. Arte Jaschke and Dr. Henkin Hernan. Children who received music lessons showed improved language-based reasoning and the ability to plan, organize, and complete tasks, as well as improved academic achievement, according to Dr. Jaschke. This suggests that the cognitive skills developed during music lessons can influence children's cognitive abilities in completely unrelated subjects, leading to overall improved performance. And they do mention right at the end of the press release that both music and arts classes are supposed to be applied throughout all Dutch primary schools by the year 2020. And they are hoping that these results will really push that. I am from a relatively privileged background, but I'm absolutely amazed that there are primary schools in the Western world that don't have music and art lessons in there. Maybe like an afternoon once a week. With the whistles, with the recorders, with the, the cowbell. Yeah. Yeah. We had a set of handbells, actually, hmm. at my primary school. And, you know, it was it was one set for the whole school and everyone would get one handbell. And I mean that was more a, a lesson in timing and cooperation than music as such. But, you know, it counts. We had sessions about movement. And we definitely had art lessons. I've got the sketchbooks still. We had uh, singing and clapping. And I mean, mm -hmm. we had to do hymns in assembly as well. We did hymns and occasional Beatles songs. <laughs> <laughs> because um, Mr. Cripps, who did the piano playing for singing in school assembly, was a massive Beatles fan. This is a tiny rebellion. We so, flipped um, straight past. He's got the whole world in his hands. All things bright and beautiful. And then Love me do. I get by with a little help from my friends. 
Fair enough. Obviously, as like eight-year-olds, we thought I get high with a little help from my friends meant in like a, a metaphysical sense rather than a narcotic sense. I believe that was the justification they used in court, yes. <laughs> These findings from the University of Amsterdam backed up in a later study that we've got the press release for as well. This one from George Mason University. They find that taking arts class leads to better academic performance. This one from a larger group of students the Amsterdam one including 147 children in Dutch schools, the George Mason University study, 31,331 students. And what's better is this large-scale longitudinal study not only traces their participants' academic achievements, but it also controls for other factors, which is not something many studies of this have done. So the legitimate criticism of the kids who are more privileged to start with are more likely to have access to music education. And the majority of them were Latino, black, English language learners and receiving free or reduced price school lunches. So this is very much a less privileged sector of the population. Music lessons don't come for free most of the time, which is a shame because they ought to. If you can afford to have music lessons, you can probably afford tutors and stuff as well. If you're going to go to the effort of taking your kid to music lessons, taking your kid to grading exams... You're leading a lifestyle that affords you that. And you're probably having greater input into your child's education in general. You're probably sitting down and helping them with their homework. So there's two studies backing up that arts should be part of education. And they improve your thinking across different subjects and will probably contribute to the learning and participation that you can engage with in your science classes as well. Which is why you should fund the arts, world. I mean, where is the science textbook industry going to be without science artists to do your diagrams, huh? Huh? Looking around this room, how many science art illustrations do we have on the wall? I mean, I was thinking about the one on your skin, but sure. (laughs) Okay, that's one I can take with me. (laughs) The one physically etched into your forearm. Science is in the ink that's in my skin, yes. (laughs) Metaphysically and literally. And finally, we've talked about how arts can help you learn and the value of a comprehensive education, arts in science, and possibly not knocking that information straight out of your head with Mai Tai boxing or whatever. You want to know what else can really contribute to consolidating information and helping you cement ideas and maybe even come up with some new ones of your own? According to mathematicians at the University of Arizona, failing 15% of the time. And this research, published in Nature Communications, is from a study titled The 85% Rule for Optimal Learning. Lead author of the study, Robert Wilson, University of Arizona Assistant Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science, worked with collaborators at Brown University, the University of California, Los Angeles, and Princeton to conduct a series of machine learning experiments teaching computers simple tasks and established that when the computers were able to give the right answer 85% of the time, then they learned the fastest Obviously, my first thought on reading that this was a machine learning experiment was, well, what's that got to do with anything else? Are computers the same as anything else? Happily, the researchers have headed me off at the pass there and done some meta-analysis of other studies and found that, in general, in learning experiments, this 85% rule seems to hold out. And there's the old adage about learning from your mistakes. 
course, if you're making nothing but mistakes, and you've clearly not learned, but if you are making just a little bit of a mistake to think, aha, uh -huh, I must remain agile and engaged with this, I can't just breeze my way through it. And they even mention the importance of maintaining this sort of rate, because with people, if something is too difficult, if they're not getting enough right to encourage them, there is a fairly high chance you will just give up. In the words of Walton, if I give you really easy examples, 100% right all the time, there's nothing left to learn. If I give you really hard examples, you may be 50% correct and you're still not learning anything new. Something in between, you can be at that sweet spot where you're getting the most information for each particular example. If you're taking classes that are too easy, and translate that to classes that are too easy, you ace them all the time, you probably aren't getting as much out of a class as someone who's struggling but managing to keep up. The hope is that we can extend this work and start talking about more complicated forms of learning. Now what this doesn't get into, which I am interested to find out about, is how you apply this, how you calibrate something to produce that 85% success rate. If it's anything like the primary and secondary education that I had, do not give the entire class the same test because as someone who sat around that 100% mark and kind of stopped trying, there is the concern that if you have an innate ability in something, you don't build the patterns of behaviour about learning, about taking in new information, about adjusting to new information as it comes your way. Yeah, I was a similar sort of position. I didn't need to revise until it was too late to learn to revise. And with the attitude to learning of, I know this, it'll be fine, and then you have a big fail, you don't adjust, you don't learn from that mistake, you... Have a nervous breakdown? A little, yeah. Yeah. A little bit. You get halfway through an undergrad degree and think, oh god, this isn't actually what I want to do. What do I want to do? Oh god, I'm not reaching my potential. I could have done so much better. I was such a precocious ah! kid. I had a really high reading age when I was nine and look at me now. So yeah, please do have a go at tailoring education to kids' abilities. Give them something to strive for and build a little bit of wiggle room before they hit that big crash as a teenager. I think it is important we mention the opposite end of the scale where everything is a struggle and therefore you kind of just give up on trying to learn stuff and disrupt classes and end up dropping out of school before you finish your GCSEs. Another case for tailoring education as best you can. Meeting everyone's needs, where they are, with what they have, with what they can do. If you'd like to join us in this educational revolution, then first of all, write to your local elected representatives and ask that of them, because they have more say in this kind of discussion than we do. If they do constituency surgeries and stuff, see if you can turn up in person. That really works. And stay up to date with informal learning through our podcast. We are at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook for slash Eureka Nerd. Or send us an email at Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. If you have enjoyed this particularly themed episode and want to hear more themed episodes in the years going forwards, then let us know about that as well. If you want to hear more just random scatterings of the latest news, then tell us that too. And if you want to help support our efforts and defray the cost of producing this, kick us a few quid on our Kofi. That's Kofi.com forward slash EurekaNerd. But just before we part ways, from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, using the incredible insights from eye tracking technology to help design better boobs. What? Yep. What makes a more attractive breast? Well, let's see what people are looking at and then try and make that in whoever needs a new boob. Unfortunately, listeners, you can't hear the face I'm pulling? It's quite a face. But like... 
They're natural. Breasts are natural structures. They're not really like. (laughs) (laughs) They are to be looked at, but that's not their only purpose. And we should really, as a society, be moving away from trying to quantify anything's value by how nice it is to look at. Don't get me wrong, I'm an aesthete. I like things to be pretty, but people are allowed to look how they look. But anyway, that's all from us. We'll see you again soon. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by The Stimulus Network.